do you like data centers? Cause I love data centers! I love data centers. I do love data centers. I love data centers. I live in Brazil. I do. I love data centers. I love data centers. I love data centers. I love data centers. I Welcome to the I Love Data Centers podcast. This is your host, Sean Patrick Terrio. I am truly humbled and honored that you've taken the time to spend some time with me today. Before we jump in, I'd like to let you know that this episode is brought to you by you. That's right, folks. This podcast exists because you want it to. And despite requests that come in for sponsorship, we have no paid advertising supporting this show. This approach gives me the opportunity to maintain an unbiased voice while conducting these interviews. I do have one request and ask of you, however. If indeed you do find these podcasts interesting and valuable, I would greatly appreciate it if you would do me the simple favor of recommending and sharing it through whatever medium you choose, offline or online. If you want to throw a hashtag, I love data centers, in any online shares you do, even better. Thank you once again, and I hope you enjoy listening to this next interview as much as I enjoyed recording it. Welcome once hey, again to another episode of the I Love Data Centers podcast. This is Sean Patrick Terrio. I have with me on this episode, Jake Ring, and Jake is the co-founder and CEO of Giga Data Centers, which is a North American data center company. Uh, but for our listeners, Jake, could you tell... Uh, tell them a little bit about Giga and what makes Giga unique. Sure, no problem. Um, Giga Data Centers was started back in really early 2018, so we're fairly new from a data center company, but we have decades of experience amongst uh, the principles of the company. Um, we've built, including the data center in Charlotte, uh, 29 data centers, uh, over 150 megawatts of power. Um, mostly it was done on a turnkey basis for the first part. And then uh, here uh, in our Charlotte data center, we've created a co-location facility that's really unique. The thing that's different is that we're offering a solution, multi-tenant co-location, using modular uh, enclosure systems of our own design that are able to deliver probably industry-leading, if not industry-best, efficiency levels. We can guarantee a PUE of 1.15, and we're actually running at a PUE of 1.1 currently right now. But we can also support high, higher levels of power density. We can go up to 50 kilowatts in the rack, um, which, while maybe that's not a, a flexibility that everybody needs immediately, it's certainly becoming more opportunistic for companies, especially when they're looking at hyperconverged systems. Which and, and other high-performance compute systems that use more power. Um, and yeah, that's, with, with that density level, the flexibility, the efficiency levels, um, what we're providing is something that's really unique for customers that's not only incredibly sustainable, but also um, highly efficient and highly reliable. Like we like to say, we're bringing high-performance, hyperscale level performance to the multi-tenant co-location market. There you go. My uh, my business partner Todd Smith, who I know you know intimately over the last uh, few months, yeah. uh, recommended that I come down and, and check out the site of which I did. And as he was telling me about what you have going on down there, uh, I was like, Todd, you know, this sounds like just another Me Too data center company. You know, touting how great they are and you know making up numbers as it relates to the efficiencies that they can 
that they can accomplish. But I happened to be down there for, for a client meeting and swung over to the facility. And I have to say, I was extremely impressed with, with what you have going on there and can validate, um, having talked to your team, that you guys are actually delivering on everything that you just said. But before we get into the, the weeds on the technology and the, the data center, I'd love mm-hmm. for our listeners to hear a little bit about you and kind of how you got started in and around the industry um, sure. and whatnot. But where where did you grow up? Where where were you originally uh, born and raised? Well, it's funny. I um, was born in St. Louis, then moved when I was three to New Jersey. And then, so I say, I did elementary school in New Jersey. Then I did middle school in Cleveland, Ohio. And then did high school down in Dallas, Texas. Uh, my dad worked for an oil company, and so we, we got to move around a little bit. Um, but I think that, that you know made me a little more resilient because I had to learn you know how to make friends with with new folks as I got in quickly. Yeah. Um, and uh, uh, you know pretty much um, you know went off to uh, college, uh, had pre med. <laughs> Uh, desires at first, and then uh, organic chemistry did me, and I think as most people uh, might have that experience, um, and wound up getting out with a, a math and computer science double major instead, and um, went to work for EDS, was at General Motors, at so the Doraville Assembly Plant in Hold on, hold on, Atlanta. hold on. Before sure. you dig into that, before you dig oh, into sorry. that, what got you interested <laughs> in math and science and technology? Was that something that was around you when you were growing up? Was your dad bringing home computers or, or how, how did you get into tech? Uh, well, he was running the pension fund for the, this um, oil and gas company. And so he would have me read off the, um, the buy low, you know, the, the high, the low, the close and the volume of, of each of the different stocks that he was tracking and managing. And he was a technical trader. He was one of the original um, founders of the technical trading society. And um, using you know smooth moving averages and things of this nature to help predict um, what the tendencies might be when uh, the animal spirits start moving the market, and so just by you know pouring over numbers, uh, and I think it just had a, a you know math seemed to come easy to me, so that I'd kept you know taking the calculus and other kind of classes um, when I got into uh, the high school and started doing differential equations and other things. Next thing I know. Uh, I'm not interested in, in pursuing that, that medical degree, but I've already got enough to where I could get a, a math major, and then enough classes were overlapping that I could have also combine that with a computer science major, and uh, so that's what I wound up doing. Um, almost, I could say it was because of ease, and it was something that I could do well um, that kind of led me into it, and you know, as a programmer initially, but. Funny enough, it was with the mainframe stuff, and it had relatively little exposure to um, any of the new you know, things, the new PCs that were coming out, for example, until not until really I got um, you know down the road working for EDS, and then went off to business school, and it was there I got more of an exposure, you know, to um, you know personal computer usage and and kind of what take what was going to be taking place as far as um, the I call it the the Industrial Revolution Two, where suddenly the application of personal computing and networking was going to enable um, a huge eruption in, in productivity. And with an interest in manufacturing, um, that's where I pursued uh, a desire of working in manufacturing, in product development, in the development of technologies. 
and I started working with Emerson Electric, uh, first at their corporate organization, and then rolled out to the Liebert organization. And Liebert's a division of Emerson at that time. Um, and uh, I arrived there around the beginning. Of, it really was the beginning of 97. So telecom deregulation has just occurred. Market is starting to explode. Um, you know, the idea of a telecom hotel um, is starting to um, appear as, uh, you know, the early earliest co-location facilities start um, appearing. Um, and we were just growing like weeds and 20% uh, plus growth year over year. And uh, that was really my exposure, my initial exposure to the, to the data center as a market. I had seen data centers inside the assembly plant. You know, I had the halon dump and everything, raised floor. Um, and it's kind of funny to me now that I can look back and say, back in the 80s, in the late 80s, there were raised floor data centers that weren't too different from what you see today. Just some efficiencies have improved on the UPSs, on the on the batteries themselves, on certainly in the equipment, the IT equipment there. But the cooling approach is still pretty much the same. So it's interesting to see how some things are more resistant to change because if it's always worked and the design mentality was we're trying to design something that's going to be up 100% of the uh, of the time, um, if the if that particular solution works, go with it. And so that's been the interesting thing to see is that, you know, people tend to, especially in the infrastructure market uh, within data centers, uh, especially at enterprise level organizations, they, they tend to say, well, this is how it's been done and, and this is how it's worked. And you can say, you can make the case that, yes, it can. But when a solution or a situation comes along that can offer a different approach or something that can improve. So now you see more data centers, I think, that are being built without race floors. Um, because there's a way to reduce that cost and the burden associated with it, especially from a maintenance standpoint. And people have finally realized that it's hard to open up tiles and crawl around underneath for wiring and cabling. It's much easier when they're just overhead and all you got to do is get up on the ladder and start moving stuff. One of the, one of the key variables to keep in mind there uh, is, for example, with the rollout of the flywheel generators, right? Mm -hmm. It's taken time for that to grow into even the market share it has now, which is nothing massive and, and massively substantial, right? There's still a, a minority of facilities that, that leverage those uh, or that technology. Uh, and in part, it's because there's so many people who are trained on how to manage and maintain the older generator UPS infrastructure and technologies. And if you deploy that flywheel and you have an issue, it's going to be more expensive and take more time to bring a technician out to actually figure out what the heck is going on. And that that plays a big part as to why it is that you know technology may take a little bit longer to roll out in a, an industry where uptime is absolutely 100% critical. So going with You're what exactly you're right. familiar with you know, may be uh, the fastest path and may be the, the less risky path, right? But that, yep. that lends to a very interesting question around what you've been rolling out and deploying, right? Um, which is it's unique. It's different. You know, there really aren't any other players in the market who are deploying what you've deployed at scale uh, specifically and exactly as you are doing it. Yeah. No, it's, it, it's interesting because, you know, the exposure to that for me came later on. Um, I'd been hired by GE. 
uh, to be the chief marketing officer for their energy management group. And this is around 2010. And I get inside and I see that the circuit breaker business, you know, that, that, that GE was known for and the switch gears, um, you know, that was product that we used to help specify back when we were, uh, when I was at Liebert. And so to see that, that those products were associated in some cases, like the UPS business that GE had, had acquired, was associated with the, uh, was in the group that sold transformers to utilities. Kind of like, what's it doing there? Why isn't it over here? Why aren't they creating a, a group, a pocket of these, or a portfolio of products that can go towards the data center market? And uh, I made the case, and we were able to form a business called GE Critical Power, um, consolidate the sales teams, um, focus on the uh, telecom and data center markets. And at this point, this is when, of course, is like around 2012, and, and Amazon is, is really just starting to, you know, hit a growth, uh, an enormous growth uptake um, with offering uh, virtual machines. And we've got a solution now that's offered that can um, really handle all of the electrical systems that could be used inside of a data center. And now taking that and calling on Google and Facebook and Microsoft and the other hyperscalers at that time, come to find out as touring their facilities, they're all using a modular approach, using some form of containment. Amazon, for example, was using a lot of uh, modular enclosures themselves. Um, their humidor, for example, um, uh, using a, a an adiabatic or, or, or passive cooling with the, the evaporative media. Um, and seeing these applications being done by the um, hyperscalers, I, I remarked how I, I don't see any of that happening in the co-location market. All the co-lo providers are pretty much more standard in offering some sort of raised floor uh, environment. And knowing that this was you know, something that could really be a differentiator, that could help reduce cost, because you know, when GM builds a, an assembly plant, they, do it, they try to do it in the most cost-effective manner. Same thing that the hyperscalers do. You know, when Google's building a data center, they're trying to drive their cost down as much as they can, but have a, a huge reliability associated with it. And um, to see that that approach could be used in the in the colo market, helping reduce costs, improve efficiency, and pass along that kind of a, of a gain to a customer, it's like you know to me that seemed like a great opportunity to create something new in a market that had pretty much come to kind of the fruition. It's like okay, the best thing we could do is maybe offer some free cooling uh, to augment the. Um, uh, chilled water systems that were being used, or you know, let's let's talk about it. You know, doing water cooling and 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 put water pipes and and heat sinks inside of servers to help those high performance compute units operate. And seeing that there's actually you know a way to use an evaporative method for driving down, um, you know, the temperatures to be able to meet those ASHRAE standards, and to do it really cost effectively as well as reduce water usage. Seemed like, wow, this is this should be a no-brainer. And, you know, the turnkey approaches that my co-founder had used were um, really helpful for those companies, and especially, you know, the Microsofts um, and Departments of Energy and Departments of Defense that, you know, he had done some contracting for. So to see now, here was an opportunity to use that same technology for the colo market. 
that was where we said, hey, this can really, this really can fly because we could actually point to a system that he'd been involved with. Um, it was at the Department of Energy's uh, National Energy Technology Lab. This is in Morgantown, West Virginia, of all places. And there they've got the Joule supercomputer. And they'd launched this um, approach, but they didn't have the data center capacity to support the supercomputer. So they're like, well, we're going to build something on a, uh, outside on a concrete pad and sent the bid out. And so um, my co-founder, James uh, Longacre, you know, they won the bid and they go to build out that um, data center and put in place a, um, you know, a, a, one of the first generations, we could call it, of the, of the wind chill. And this is a product that was evaporative cooling, uh, 35 kilowatts per rack, about a megawatt deployed. And it's been operating at a PUE of 1.06 since 2012, consistently. And it's been averaging uh, a savings, uh, they estimate, about $450,000 in electricity alone every year. So we're like, well, if that's still working, and it's able to adapt, so that with earlier last year, when they came out with the, the second version of the Joule supercomputer, with, you know, going from... Uh, teraflops to petaflops, <laughs> it was like they were able to put it in the same infrastructure. Um, so when we came across this property in Charlotte, um, we knew that this could be a, a great data center opportunity. It has a substation on premise, uh, fiber conduits are going right through the front yard um, with 11 carriers accessible. Um, they said this could be the opportunity to deploy the, the wind chill because uh, this is a long, rectangular, open manufacturing space. It was a former Eaton manufacturing plant before it gotten taken over by Dale Earnhardt. And the Dale Earnhardt Motorsports facility had been operating in it until about 2017, and then the building had been empty. Um, and uh, so we were fortunate enough to come along to find the, find the property and put in the windchill systems. And every experience we've had so far with customers that have come on site, they, they still don't seem to get it at first. But as I like to say, the approach is similar to when if you go to the grocery store, right, and you, and you, you get some milk. Um, you come home, you don't put the milk on the countertop and turn down the air conditioning in your house. Instead, you go to the refrigerator, open the door, close it, put it in there. You contain it. And the same approach should be done for data centers. Now, is the size of that space, you know, 10,000 square feet? Um, are you cooling everything? You know, you're still cooling a whole lot of space. But what if you were to just limit it, you know, limit the cooling to around that which just needed to be kept cold or, you know, cooled? And that's the approach we took. And um, so you'd far, think that, uh, you'd think that uh, that model, right, would have mm -hmm. caught on a lot sooner. And it was surprising to me when I first got started in the industry around 2004, 2005, seeing just how many facilities even location facilities were being built without any um, uh, containment and or even using something as simple as blanking panels, right? Right. Uh, in the racks. And yet the efficiency gains by just doing some simple things like that and just understanding thermodynamics and how air flows uh, and optimizing that airflow has truly transformed uh, cost structure of operating those facilities. And you've taken it even that further step. There's other containers that have been out there, right? And I guess one of the key questions I had for you is, 
you know, IO data centers, for example, um, mm-hmm. was one of the, the few and the first to come out from a colocation perspective with a containerized uh, a modular um, solution. Uh, but the, the use case in, for that containerization um, approach is it's not for everybody. Right. So right. Wa- walking through who is it ideally suited for and who is it not ideally suited for is a conversation that I think our audience would, would greatly appreciate. Sure. Um, you know, it is ideally suited for what I like to call the, you know, the lights out data center where you have your equipment in place and you are able to, um, you've got the network accessibility and so you're able to see the performance of your um, the, uh, the environments that you've set up and are able to do it. If you're having to engage with your 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 servers, you know, so we affectionately call everybody that does this a you know a server hugger, and um, you know sometimes some people use it in a, as a pejorative, but it's not. It, you know, it's like we need to check on the equipment and see how it's it's actually performing. Or we have to do a lot of updates, or it's our responsibility to handle um, adding additional equipment. Um, and in that case, you know, getting in and maybe, you know, some people like to, they want to have a, a cage environment in which they have a office, so, so to speak, set up right next to their IT equipment, you know, where there's a desk or something of that nature. I've seen this and, you know, that's fine. And, and that may be what you really want and, how, and what you enjoy. Um, but the solution that we see that is becoming more, you know, applicable is, I need the hardware to be set up in the proper environment and, you know, it doesn't need to have a light on it. Nobody really needs to come by. Um, Really, it just needs to be sitting in the proper environment and I need it to be as cost effective as possible because um, they're spending, the the turnover in the newer equipment is coming Um, and the wave has been coming on. Um, I like to point to hyperconverged systems because the adoption was so strong. Uh, it was expected to be at 35% market share by the end of 2019, and instead it was at um, 46.5%. So a huge uptake in the use of hyperconverged systems because it's easier to use. It's like it's cloud in a box. I don't have to worry about trying to get a specialist to get the um, the networking gear to talk to the you know blade servers to talk with the, the SAN. I can. You know, basically coordinate everything with um, and get a generalist to do it through the the portal and and point and click and create you know the VMs and and set up the uh, the appropriate processes. And these are the things that are are taking place and are making it simpler and easier to use the IT by being driven by the software. And so it makes it easier for you to set up the the hardware stack. And well, once you get it in place, you can manage it remotely. Um, or you don't have to be on site. You don't have to visit as much. And so that's where we see really the opportunities is uh, providing a facility which can stand up and support the equipment without the need for people. You know, certainly you can come by and do whatever you want to do, but, you know, you don't have to be concerned because it's in its own private suite. It's basically behind a lock and a key in a box inside a box, you know, so that provides this enhanced layer of physical security and knowing that your environment's going to do just fine. If something happens in somebody else's wind chill, where there's like a smoking, you know, a, a shorted power supply, and now you've got some sort of, you know, smoking happening that's that's taking place, 
and somebody wants to have gaseous suppression in their rack to, to, to affect it. You know, you don't have to be concerned about something happening when you're in the, the neighboring wind chill because if there's an isolation there, it prevents any kind of occurrence from, from being a problem. Or if there's a, a sprinkler that, you know, goes off by accident and some of these can still happen, even with pre-action, you know, somebody knocks a, a valve. I've seen it happen where the sprinkler still comes. What happens to that equipment underneath? I mean, if it's inside of the box, nothing happens to it. It still operates and it's able to operate just fine. So these are the, the things we see um, taking place, that there's less desire to um, manage that, that IT um, within a, you know, kind of, uh, you know, on-premise type of approach. It's like I, I can get to a more cost-effective solution and reduce the cost um, by putting it into co-location. Um, makes more sense and we'll pursue it. And it's interesting, too, because you've seen that happening from so many analysts. Dave Capuccio and you know, and Bob Gill from uh, Gartner have been beating that drum for the last three years. Get, if you're in, if you have your own on-premises data center, get out because the cost associated with it is going to be so high. Um, you know, and I, I remember you know going to you know the, the GE data center in Alpharetta, and uh, Jim Craig, you know, a friend who retired now, but who was managing in that, he said, "Jake, I'm spending a million dollars a year." on chiller maintenance alone. And when you think about the cost of operating facilities, and if you could turn that over instead to another organization that whose focus is just being able to provide a very efficient, cost-effective solution without all that operating expense, um, it just becomes a, a bigger advantage um, for, uh, for companies to help reduce their costs. Now you can have your IT resources focusing on the information that's coming out of the equipment as opposed to managing the equipment. So what's your perspective on the influx of new data center owner operators in the marketplace, Giga being one of them, that is um, approaching the hyperscale marketplace uh, for business, understanding that although there's an insatiable appetite from the Microsofts and the Googles and the Facebooks and whatnot. Um, there's only so many ways to skin this cat and so many providers and players in the marketplace um, who are going to take down these deals. And I guess right. that's the first question. Like, how do you see that playing out in the short term and the long term? Well, it, it's funny because they're not our primary target. You know, the, the approach for us was really for the enterprise clients that are looking at um, having to change over their, their IT um, strategy and uh, looking at how they could start migrating off-premise and start taking advantage of the lower-cost advantages uh, that, uh, you know, co-location play and running a hybrid approach of so much information or so, much, so many um, workloads running in a public cloud and so many running in a in a private cloud or, or environment that they you know are managing themselves, and you know that was really our target. If we happen to come across a solution offering that is appealing to a, a hyperscaler that wants to take advantage of it, um, you know we're you know we're ready to support, but we're not going to try and you know put something up in Ashburn and try and bang our heads with everybody else in the market. You know you know that's pursuing the kinds of um, you know, uh, 
pricing that's 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 happening from the oversupply that's that's hitting that market. Yeah. Um, instead, we see it's the it's kind of like the interior. It's like the you know I hate to say like the coastlines. It's not really, but the tier one markets have seen so much growth. Markets, you know, of course, Ashburn is you know the largest data center can, you know uh, market in the entire world. Um, closing in on what two gigawatts of, of power utilization now, if they haven't surpassed it already. But then you've got markets in San Jose, in Dallas, and Phoenix, and Seattle, and Chicago. Still, New York, New Jersey. I mean, you know, these markets have 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 been great growth points, but now latency becomes an issue. Um, the customers that are have amassed a lot of data don't want to have to move that data. Uh, necessarily, it's like, hey, can you help me move that compute capacity closer to me? Um, company we're talking to that is doing genome um, mapping, and the cost associated with that in their own data center was becoming um, too high. The data center itself was designed for like 50 watts a square foot, couldn't support the high-performance compute solutions they were trying to put in place. And so they're like, well, we could look at, at putting it on the cloud, but then that Material, the, the content that they're generating or, or the results would have to be shared with the cloud server owners. And you don't want to share IP rights sometimes. So, how do I take advantage of that? I need that equipment to be done. Can I come on premise? You know, they come and they say, Jay, can, can you build a data center for us on premise? And it's like, yes, we can manage a co location solution for you on your premise. And that way, you're not having to in, in, in incur the cost. Um, associated with having to refresh an old data center, so we'll build that data center, you know, nearby or on-prem, and and allow that you know to be something managed um, that provides you now the benefit of having that equipment still owned by you and managed by you, but now you don't have to worry about the infrastructure costs. And so that's a new thing that uh, that you guys are doing. So you're taking the modular. Uh, environment and you're bringing it to the customer not simply having them deploy in the, the charlotte facility correct i mean we've got so we, we're, we're we're fortunate enough that we're getting the customer um uh, influx into the facility um here but now it's time for us to start branching out and so our next location is we're building a data center in tennessee we're closing on the property at the end of the month um and then we've got additional sites that we've targeted in tier two markets. Um, we're in tier three markets where um, there's not the capacity to support the customers that are saying, well, I, my, my compute is here and, you know, I've, I've got, you know, stuff in on my enterprise on-prem, but I don't want to necessarily move all that far or try to get things into a, a large market. How can I, into a tier one market data center, how can I, how can you support me here? And, and now it's like, now we're going to be able to bring that hyperscale level of performance to that multi-tenant market that's not being served, you know, out in, you know, in the Southeast and the Midwest and Northeast and out in the, the Southwest as well. There, there, there's just like a, a number of different locations where we see that there's unmet demand and, um, and we're being kind of customer led. So, uh, that's been, you know, kind of what we think is our, our our strength is that because we can build a data center very quickly, you know, we can take an empty warehouse and turn it into a data center in six months, and 
the result of that will be something that's got that level of flexibility to support, you know, three kilowatts up to 50 kilowatts, but, you know, will maintain that high level of, of PUE performance and um, provide that level of security. So it, it's it's something that um, we think differentiates us, you know, pretty pretty strongly. Um, and I think the trend is still that there's going to continue to be large growth in the in the cloud. Uh, and public clouds, and those public cloud companies are already moving out into, you know, different locations. Look at what's ha- taking place in Columbus, Ohio, for example, where Amazon's building out multiple facilities, and uh, you know, Microsoft is building out facilities there. So, being able to, you know, deliver a, a, a lower latency solution for companies that are or people that are wanting it, as bandwidth starts to expand, um, you know, wasn't very long ago when people would like say. 10 gig circuit? I don't need a 10 gig circuit. Now they're saying, I need a 100 gig circuit. <laughs> so as those pipes are getting bigger and the amount of traffic flow is going to increase, um, you need to have those distribution points that'll help with um, being able to be those additional points of the network. And that's where we're able to support. Gotcha. And can you speak at all about the Tennessee facility and location? Because I know there's a unique story about that. Sure. Um, so uh, we are um, building a facility in Oak Ridge, Tennessee, um, to support the needs of um, the clients in the area. There are um, there are markets there that are are growing. DW, for example, just recently inked a deal with Oak Ridge National Labs to put um, a new technology center there. And uh, as you may know, in Oak Ridge uh, National Labs, the world's fastest supercomputer is housed. Um, this, the, uh, this is the Summit. Um, or is it Frontier? No, Summit. And, um, you know, that area there, it's, it's, I think it's uh, about 11 megawatts spread over some, you know, I think like 40, 60 racks. I mean, running at about 43 kilowatts per rack. and Yet that supercomputer is about to be replaced with Frontier, which is going to be the next fastest supercomputer. Yet they still have supercomputers on site still, Titan and Kraken and and, and others that are are still being used. And companies are trying to take advantage of that supercompute capacity for doing all kinds of models and and simulation modeling for their operations. And um, car manufacturers, retail, you know, consumer goods companies, aerospace companies, um, and that need is now, you know, something where you can, you know, query multiple databases, like, for example, the NOAA database is housed in Oak Ridge. When you're, that's all of the, uh, it's National Oceanographic Aeronautics Administration. So you've got all of the environmental, you know, temperature measurements and and system changes that have taken place over the decades, you know, or, or, you know, so many years within, you know, across the entire country. You ping a query on that, you know, something that's petabytes in size, right? You come back with a query that is, you know, terabytes in size. And how do you move that quickly unless you've got a huge pipe? Remember, it's like if you've got a 100 megabit, um, you know, bandwidth, you want to move just one terabyte of data, it's going to take like 26 hours. <laughs> so... It's like if you're, and that's not including all the, you know, the, the maybe the other, hot, you know, single hops that it has to take or, or whatever kind of, you know, that's if it's consistent. So 
when you look at that and you see, well, then if I've got so much data, then maybe I need to move the compute where the data is located. And so that's where we see, you know, kind of this opportunity um, to take this. And it's a um, facility that, you know, we're targeting and we'll be able to have open um, by the third quarter. Well, the, the other interesting story there, just as a quick geography lesson, Oak Ridge is right outside of Knoxville, Tennessee, which is about, what is it, an hour and a half, two hours from Nashville, roughly? Roughly speaking, yeah. Yeah. And it's maybe about an hour away from Chattanooga. Oh, probably even less. Yeah. Um, I actually drove, funny enough, I drove right through it on my way, drove from Raleigh to Nashville for a training events back in November. And of course, I may drive a little fast, so maybe that's the case. Maybe it's actually. <laughs> but the, uh, the other interesting fact about Oak Ridge, right, is the hidden city, right? It's, it was big. right. And and it's amazing too because you know you go in there and the and the facility that we're we're looking at we've got a a, a you know a, a property that um, kind of it sits in a great location but we went out and we were evaluating a lot of the you know the properties around there and one is the heritage site which was the site of um, the Manhattan Project and so to go out there and walk along the, the grounds and to see this crisscrossing of of you know, transmission lines, 500 kV transmission lines. I mean, that's the that's the national grid, you know, kind of level. And to see the just the sheer amount of power that was available um, is fascinating. And the Y12 facility there is where it's kind of like the the uh, it's like the Fort Knox for uran for the country's uranium is, is kept there. Um, so it's it's a it's a fascinating location that um, where. I'm sure the average IQ has got to be like over the top. <laughs> yeah, but to, to your point, right? It's had to have so much infrastructure built out to support both the historical needs of that region, but even the, the current needs of that region, which lends right. perfect um, credence to why that site would be ideally suited for such such a data center, high density data center deployment. Right. And and so for us, the thing that we're, you know, and it was fun to have these conversations because people are, well, we need to have, you know, we need to have, um, you know, water cooling uh, for these computers. And we say, well, we could support 50 kilowatts of rack and with just air cool. And they go, what? <laughs> um, it, it, it's, uh, you know, again, you know, you, you, you go and proceed some, proceed with some, some old, you know, um, understandings or, or you know what's available, and and don't really realize what kind of opportunities could be presented. The hyper the, the high performance compute solutions that are coming out and becoming more commercially utilized don't have to necessarily be included. You know, you don't have to put them in, you know, um, you know, in in mineral oil baths or um, put water cooling inside when you can actually. With the approach of containing the cold aisle from the hot aisle, having positive pressure going in the cold aisle and negative pressure in the hot aisle to help move that heat, you're able to have um, uh, a level of performance in, in providing the cooling um, you know, removal of heat without it being very cost costly and uh, without requiring all the maintenance that's associated with it. So that's been kind of fun to have those conversations. Have you, you know, to that end, I was just having a conversation uh, with a, a peer in the industry about uh, 
water cooling and liquid cooling have and part of the reason why it has struggled to gain traction in the market it's not that it's not being used because it is being used in select circumstances mm -hmm. um, we haven't seen wide adoption of you know mineral oil uh deployments for server infrastructure have you ever looked into the numbers as to what the cost is for deploying uh, within that type of environment versus just a, an enclosed containerized solution such as the one that you have and you know, pros and cons to that extent? Well, um, have, and it's kind of like if you have a consistent application that you're trying to run, um, and which is why like the mineral bath approach has, has worked really well for um, the usage of uh, GPUs, whether it be for you know um, cryptocurrency um, usage or for um, running um, a lot of high density algorithm uh, type of approaches, I, I've seen the applications, for example, down in Houston, um, where they were uh, putting a lot of, uh, of the processors in a in a mineral bath type of, of vault um, to do that. Um, and, and it's, there's just a consistency of the application that's running across each of the boards that's being submerged so that, you know, if one, you know, does have a failure or something and it needs to be replaced, you can pull out and put another one in. But in a data center, in a co-location data center, customers are going to have a, such a diversity of application that you can't, you know, to say that one size is going to fit all. And so it's more of a, um, although it can be more cost effective to deploy using the windchill system, it also provides the support for the flexibility that the customers have with the kind of applications or, or hardware that they need to deploy. And when we looked at the actual cost on a, on a per kilowatt basis type, type of, of situation, you can derive much better um, costs when you've got a mineral bath type of an approach and you're just doing heat rejection um, and you can run that, you know, pipe up to the roof and, you know, get the, the, the heat rejected out and, and, and bring that back in to, uh, you know, uh, 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 that kind of an application. Um, you still need, if you're still needing this, uh, the kind of resiliency from a, uh, an electrical system standpoint, you know, the UPS is still going to cost what the UPS is. But if you're substituting the need for putting in chilled water um, systems by putting things in a, in a mineral bath, the cost reduction is pretty strong. But again, the diversity of the application is what drives the need for saying, well, I need to put some of this into you know, a different you know, solution offering. Or, or the product that I'm buying from the OEMs is going to be more consistent in this fashion. Because, for example, I like to talk about the Open Compute Project a lot because that effort was something that was uh, developed to try to drive um, open designs to help push volume. And with that enhanced level of volume on more open um, solution offerings, it would drive the overall cost down. And when you got a volume of a Google or a Facebook, you know, behind uh, some of the designs of, of different um, OCP um, servers or solutions, um, this, this, the savings can be pretty significant. Um, and the adoption becomes easier because the, the solution offering has been tested. Um, and, and so we, uh, I can see that those kind of applications are um, you know, being driven 
really for still a, a data center level environment. You don't see a submerged type of application for them because they still need the ability, I guess, to more easily uh, manage a solution out of a rack that's vertical rather than something that's you know laying horizontal. So um, I know for us, being able to support a 52U rack is giving like another 20% of space for some data center customers that are coming out of system or, or, or data centers where you know the 42 rack was being offered as a standard. Now it's like, okay, not only can you put you know more equipment inside the taller rack, but because of the power flexibility, you can run out of space before you run out of power. And I think that that's um, also something that's that's going. Can can the adoption happen sooner? Um, where you can have a multitude of different applications running on similar platforms that can all be submerged, and 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 that it, it's certainly possible. But things move, you know, for as quickly as things move in technology, the infrastructure and the hardware still moves very slowly. I mean, I think it's kind of interesting. I thought things would go, maybe there might be a little more adoption with the the, the kind of the DC backplane approach, but you just don't see that, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so, you know, um, you know, being able to eliminate the power supplies inside servers and just go you know, directly to a DC backplane would reduce, you know, some cost and certainly make it easier, but um, you know, the, the adoption for that just hasn't taken up either. Yeah. It, it's interesting. I was just at uh, Lenovo's headquarters, which is right down the road from uh, where I am in Raleigh. Yeah. I was able to get a tour of their their labs and their engineering labs, and um, there was a big group with us of about 20-some-odd people, but I, I stayed back and started jabbing with um, one of the engineers who was working specifically on their liquid cooled uh, server technology. Mm-hmm. And one of the questions I asked him was like, so what, what's really like, what, what can you do next? Like what, are there any major shifts and changes that you can really do with this technology? Or is it like marginal improvements of moving this little widget here or this little widget there? And at the end of the day, they're really, you know, he freely acknowledged and admitted that um, there's nothing major and drastic that's, that's changing in that space, but that's, Related, it's a question that I have for most of the, the people that I interview on this podcast is uh, when asked, you know, what's really new and hot and sexy in the data center industry, most people say there's really not that much going on today, like now today, that's going to truly transform mm. the marketplace and transform the industry. Um, but I'm curious what your take is on that. Do you see anything <laughs> specific that's happening that's truly going to be game changer in our space? Or is it just, you know... Same old, same old, you know, moving this infrastructure into more locations further out into the, the edge uh, of the, the demand. But what, what are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, within the, the electrical and mechanical, you know, sphere, I, I see that um, the incremental steps have been, you know, started with people saying, well, if it's like right now, it's like, what, 43 degrees outside in Charlotte. So, <laughs> Yet, I know that there are some data centers where the chilled water systems are still running. So, um, yet, the newer systems are able to start taking advantage of the cooling and, and bringing, you know, starting to use more of that free cooling approach. And I see that as being an adoption that's been a long time coming, and it's a welcome change. Um, on the electrical side, I think the, the biggest change is, is the use of lithium-ion batteries. Um, and specifically, the lithium-iron 
phosphate chemistries. So those chemistries are the ones that can uh, survive. You know, go, they have a, a thermal, um, you know, limit up to 275 degrees you know, Fahrenheit before you know going into some sort of thermal thermal runaway. And so the need to actually have a battery room that's air conditioned. This was thing that always I always marveled at is that you know you had to have UPSs and batteries in a room cooled down with air conditioning, the same as what you might have on the floor. And um, but those you know lead acid or valve regulated lead acid batteries would have like a life of five years. But if you had a hit, you might have to replace a couple of those cells until you actually at the end of five years have to replace the entire string. And now you can do, you know, you have some things that are lasting for 15 years. They're happy to stay in an environment at 90 degrees or higher. Um, so you don't have to really worry about um, the batteries performing. And um, essentially, like, you can, you know, utilize a lot more of your space because these take so little space. The TCO calculations on lithium-ion are clearing away you know, a solution offering that, you know, makes sense and people should be considering them. You know, we've got five 19-inch racks, uh, you know, for battery cabinets. Uh, that's kind of the, the, the format that they have. And that's storing a megawatt of battery at, at seven minutes BOL. So, um, or at full load. Um, so we're, you know, we're, we're happy as clams with those. I think on the networking side is where you're seeing a lot more of the changes. On the systems deployed for being able to do the monitoring and the control and the management, um, you know, everybody has been pursuing that single pane of glass approach, and I think that that's where um, some of the, you know, more of the the newer applications I've seen from an artificial intelligence standpoint, you know, where um, some of the monitoring systems are saying, uh, based upon the information that's coming in. There's a prediction that there's going to be a potential, you know, drive failure for this equipment, you know, coming up, you know, be aware of it. And then when it happens, you're able to respond quicker or you can take preact, you know, preemptive action. I think those are the developments that are going to be really helping to drive the, uh, the management of the data center to much greater level of effectiveness and reliability. Um, being able to use, um, uh, a software-defined networking approach that can help provision faster, um, that uh, allows for um, you know the the access to um, the system, you know the the, uh, the hyper hyper converged system that's being stood up and being able to now um, apply the 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 IPs and be able to get the networking bandwidth you know dialed into the, the level that somebody really wants. Um, you know, and, you know, being able to provide that, um, accessibility, you know, at a much faster pace. I think those are the, the kinds of things that are, are, are happening now and are going to start accelerating. Um, so I think it's, this is a really interesting market, I think, to be in because really this is the, this is the backbone. This is the base, you know, um, foundation of all of the technology that's being used, you know, to help drive a more connected world. You've got to have these distribution points. If we're going to roll out 5G, you know, types of levels, everybody talks about IoT and, you know, 5G, you know, making a huge pass. The thing about it is that you're going to need more 
points of distribution when you start to push a network out that needs to have more points of access. You know, the, the high-speed 5G um, doesn't go through windows, doesn't go through walls. So you're going to have this pro- proliferation of antennas. And all those antennas have to run on wires to someplace. And, um, you know, that uh, those points, of, uh, those gathering points, if you will, or distribution points are going to become, um, to get closer to the customer uh, or the end user who's actually going to start accessing that network, you will need more points such that you're going to do information utilization closer into where that customer is before you start do it and do maybe some aggregation before you're running it all back to a large data center in, in Washington, D.C. So I, I, that's where I think, um, you know, what is it? The last thing I'd read was that really the, the implementation of 5G for everybody in the country is not really going to start being felt until like 2023. So there's still a lot of years of build out because you've got to do a total, this isn't just taking down one set of information on a pole and, and uh, or one set of equipment on, on the, the carrier pole and, and putting new ones in place. It, this is rather, this is a, a, a total different level of systems that have to be implemented. Those are costly and, and it's going to take some time for it to roll out. And, um, and so I, I, I see that's what's going to be supportive for the, from a data center standpoint is if you can help support that foundation that needs to be put in place in order to help speed the delivery of this new connectivity. So totally agree. And I'm, I'm on the same page. The, the need for more <laughs> infrastructure everywhere, right, is, is it's an obvious uh, reality that you and I see having being in this space and seeing how everything is being deployed. I don't think everyone fully understands that. Um, and one of the things I wanted to also ask you about is I, I've heard uh, some say, well, all compute is going to be distributed to the local devices. So your Xbox or your cell phone or your laptop is going to have, uh, you know, you can separate um, CPU and, and storage uh, to run uh, applications and or um, whatever it might be for four different needs uh, for other people and everyone's going to be their own data center uh, or have the capability to deploy and, and get paid uh, to offer up when they're not using their devices uh, that other, other people can aggregate that, uh, that infrastructure. I'm very reluctant to buy into that uh, paradigm. Um, even right. though the software may exist to allow that to happen I just see the, how complicated it is for companies and applications to operate um, outside of you know a single server today, and how few people can even run active-active environments uh, across an environment. To think that all of a sudden all of these applications and workloads are going to be distributed across micro devices everywhere, but is that is that a conversation you've you've come across in your your dealings in the industry? Um, it, it's, it's been one of the kind of the topics that's been on a couple of different panels is a lot of people trying to guess what is going to be, what's the end game? What's the end result? And, you know, will we all have wearable technology? Um, I think there, you know, the level of wearable technology will, will start to increase. Sure. But, um, I don't think that we're all going to become our own walking data center, <laughs> so to speak. <laughs> Just and on the left, on the low, it's, I don't know. It, the, the, 
I, I keep coming back to that one comment that Michael Dell made. It was what, about three years ago or so. He was at Davos and he said, you know, one server's level of compute support is needed to support three smartphones. And as smartphones start taking on more capacity, you know, you may need, you may be able to add more, you know, the, the, the server that's in a data center um, may be able to support maybe four, da- you know, four smartphones or something. But, you know, there still needs to be that, that underlying infrastructure support that's going to be needed to support the technology that is going to be out at the end. Um, I mean, uh, I look at, um, you know, there's a couple of different companies that are able to use the compute capacity inside their cell phones. It's a great company, and I'm trying to remember their name. But they're providing, through their app, support for customers for example, who have health conditions like diabetes, and they're needing support to be able to help control their diabetes through, um, you know, better uh, caloric intake uh, and management, um, making sure that they're, you know, from, their, from a testing of their blood sugar levels and things like that. My dad has diabetes, so this is near and dear to my heart. But the capacity of the smartphone that they're using is able to help reduce the need, um, you know, the, the the latency issue that might be uh, affecting otherwise if if everything was being trying to push back into um, some sort of a, a centralized cloud so instead the compute that is being uh, or the applica- the softwares are being written on the applications such that it's easier to support um, the needs on the application from the phone without having to do uh, you know send out a task to the centralized you know, cloud system so that, you know, for, for this company, they're saying, based on what we're doing with apps, we don't ever need a data center. We'll be able to use the cloud and that's it. Public cloud is fine for us. We may have multiple clouds. Um, we can manage issues by having, you know, multiple cloud redundancies and being in different opportunity zones and that'll be fine for us. And I see that being understood more and, and being, you know, utilized. But there's still going to be so many applications that are going to be location specific. If you've got a smart city and you're trying to organize the control of the municipal systems for lighting, um, traffic control, um, fire, and, 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 and other first responder safety um, situations, that is something that is going to take local IT support. You're going to need to have that that. Uh, those workloads managed closer to where the data is being uh, pulled in in order to be responsive enough. Uh, I think you and I can probably agree on the situation. Everybody t- was talking about autonomous vehicles was going to drive the need for uh, capacity. You need to, uh, servers that, at, at every cell tower. And the reality is that, no, it's not. You're going to have such a large amount of compute capacity inside an autonomous vehicle that it's going to be, you know, able to handle whatever immediate situation it has to handle um, from, you know, the compute that's coming out of the car. It's not going to send some sort of request <laughs> to a cell tower and say, should I take a right here or not? <laughs> that that kind of interaction is not going to happen. But the um, municipal systems that are going to be trying to control the rerouting of electricity grids inside 
um, a, a city or something, that's going to require a lot more compute capacity. You know, not only to respond after a storm or event, if storms are going to start becoming more severe, if you're going to have um, you know, uh, a climate-affected level of uh, resurgence of, of things, you want to make sure that your grid's going to be more resilient because people are so dependent upon the electricity. So you need to have that compute capacity located there to help with either rerouting power or um, being able to manage power distribution from more centralized microgrids. Um, so I think that's that's where I see you know some of the things that are going to be driving it. This is that aspect of IoT that you know people you know you know I, I think kind of glaze over, but it's like that's a real application right now that can have a have a big impact. I look again at Chattanooga, and they put in more interrupters on the poles so as to reroute electricity in all of Hamilton County that were you know, at one point down in the in, that were in the entire state of Texas. And with that, they were able to recover from any kind of um, you know tree felling or other kind of storm impact, rerouting power and restoring power to the entire county in you know as little as fifteen minutes um, or less. You know, it was kind of like it's 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 that kind of a capability. That's the application of technology that I think is is really needs to start being rolled out really quick. You know, across the across the board. Yeah. It- it will be interesting to see if it does, because as we you mentioned prior, the cost to do so is fairly substantial because A, you need to buy the technology. And because it's not already at scale, it's more expensive than it would be if it is at scale. And then you need people who are trained in how to both deploy and then manage it once it's up and running. Right. And that's, yep. and that's, that creates a, that's a, it's an obstacle, but it creates a massive opportunity. Um, and that's where, you know, to, any youth that are listening and to anyone who has youth in their homes, like I do, I, I keep preaching to my 13 year old and my 10 year old and my six year old, you have to learn tech and it's not how to use a tablet. It's learn how this stuff actually works at a core level. And if you can right. learn that you will be light years ahead of your peers. Once you move through into the workforce. I think one of the biggest issues that the, that our industry is facing um, is is people and specifically the technical people that understand um, the the flow of data, what needs to take place to protect it, to encrypt it at rest and at movement, to ensure that it's um, you know packets are being received, and you know I think the whole um, the the knowledge base of, of people <laughs> that can support that we could use probably. I think five times the level of people that um, you know have that have you know have that experience. I, I've never seen a situation where there's been um, uh, you know a network engineer that hasn't been able to find an opportunity really quickly if they if they just go out and you know throw their hat out in the, in, into the wind, right? You know, it's it's uh, and I think that's a, a situation that's just going to start to accelerate as you get more. You know, I, there's this one. Um, uh, Facil- uh, it's a go to smart cities or nextcenturycities.com or .org I think and and that's a listing of all these different cities and municipalities that have signed up that the way to help improve their um their 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 performance or their, or their their competitiveness is to implement either fiber to the home or broadband wi-fi and when you've got organizations that are trying to roll, roll this out across the board 
um, you know, just um, it was it was taking like in Atlanta, it's it's taken years um, for uh, for Marta buses to be able to just have their own um, hotspots on them, so as to be able to support customers that you know are, are riding the bus um, for you know providing internet connectivity. It's something that was being talked about for I think like five years before it actually started being rolled out. And um, these are things that, you know, um, are going to start happening more as, as people realize that the benefits from rolling out a Wi-Fi application or Wi-Fi connectivity um, enhances the, the competitiveness and, and provides better service levels uh, to employees and citizens. You know, I think that that's going to be something that will start to generate. You know, that, like you say, some things cost money, but as that that is one area where the volume is starting to to drive down the cost and it's becoming easier to start implementing but when yep. you do that now you need people that can actually do it and understand it um it's a topic that's actually near and dear to my heart which is bringing uh high speed internet access into rural america which mm-hmm. um i've caught in flack for saying this but i i hands down believe that there's a handful of the the major carriers that are um, holding hostage a lot of rural America, uh, delivering the services that they are as a monopoly or the monopoly in town, or even the local ISP who's been doing it, uh, is holding the, the local community hostage, charging egregious rates, like 1990 rates for internet access, uh, simply because there is no other competition in town. Um, so I've, I'm working with a handful of different folks uh, to hopefully alleviate that scenario across the country um but one of the i'd love to know more about that so um would love to, to see how you know you know i can be supportive because I, I i agree with you that i think that there's a situation there that um you know the the need for being able to extend expertise into you know rural areas where there's a, you know there are greater distances you know you can't get as many doctors um, out into some areas, so being able to have um, you know more telemedicine opportunities available, I think that's a that's a that's a huge need that needs to be addressed. Um, so I mean, lack of education is actually what we found is one of the key reasons why it's not happening. Because when you say, "Hey, we're we're going to create a disruptive marketplace for connectivity services in your community," uh, the local ISP is threatened by that. Whoever it may be, it may be AT&T, it may be CenturyLink, it may be the local ISP, whoever they are, will instantly start calling up their customers and say, hey, I know we've been selling you 100 meg for you know, $30 a meg for the last God knows how long, uh, but we're <laughs> going to cut our price down to $3 a meg, you know, and the customer's like, oh, phenomenal, great, I'll sign a three-year term contract at $3 versus 30 thinking they're getting a fabulous deal uh, and not realizing that all they've done is lock themselves into a long-term contract. And yes, they're getting a better rate. They're now locked into that one company and that one contract versus waiting a few months to see how this whole thing is going to play out and realize that you now have a myriad of different options. And that one option at $3 may not be the best one. Um, right. And using some kind of an aggregation uh, provider who's leveraging multiple carriers, multiple service providers, such that if any one is having an issue, you can route to the other that changes the game, but they don't understand that that's even possible or an option. Um, so I think education is absolutely critical, which is 
it'll be honest why I do this podcast <laughs> because I'm trying to, you know, the raising tide will hopefully uh, rise all, raise all ships. And if we can put this information out there and promote it, hopefully people can get their hands on it, get educated and learn about how it all operates. But um, one of the other points I wanted to touch on with you is North Carolina, right? Um, yep. And since, you know, I moved out here four years ago, almost to the day. And I didn't dig too deep into the data center marketplace and industry in North Carolina before I moved out here. It was more around um, lower, <laughs> higher quality of life, lower cost of living, lower taxes. Um, the people, uh, you know, the, the hockey team here in Raleigh, because I'm a big hockey fan. And I came from the Bay Area and Silicon Valley where, you know, I had the exact opposite of all the things that I just mentioned. Um, <laughs> and it's, you know, far less traffic out here than there is in the Bay Area. Uh, but oh, yeah. a poster child for why people should leave the Bay Area and move to, to Raleigh, North Carolina. But as I dug into the cost of power for data center owner operators, and I dug into mm -hmm. the tax incentives for those who are deploying in North Carolina, and I dug into the very low latency between here and Ashburn, here in Atlanta, um, it's mind-boggling to me how more companies are not looking at North Carolina as a home to deploy their infrastructure at substantially cheaper pricing and, and rates and total cost of ownership than they are deploying into Atlanta and Ashburn, even with the mass hysteria that's gone on in those markets and so many new players coming into that market, it still costs more from a power perspective, space perspective, even talent perspective to operate in those markets than it is to operate in this market. And I'm curious what your perspective is as to why, why is that paradigm? Why does that paradigm exist? Is it purely a marketing thing and that North Carolina hasn't really put themselves on the map because they're not attending, you know, the different events with their economic development teams, uh, the cap raise and related data center events and Gartner's or what, why and what the heck is going on? Well, you know, um, it's funny that you talk about that because that was one of the things that we noticed as well when, you know, a friend had, was the one who actually introduced me to this particular facility saying you need to check it out. And I did. And that's when I started looking into Raleigh, uh, into, you know, like into the Charlotte market and finding out that Charlotte, you know, is one of the, um, I think it's like the third largest, you know, financial institutional center in, in the U.S. Um, and, um, about to get bigger with the, um, combined, SunTrust and BB&T entity going to be headquartered here, uh, along with Bank of America and uh, and others that have a, have a footprint here. And um, Ally Bank, um, Wells Fargo has a, a suitable location, a, a large enough uh, group here as well because of the Wachovia acquisition they made years ago. I mean, there's a lot of activity um, here in the Charlotte market. And to that end, it's you know all of the, the fiber runs that go from Charlotte up to Ashburn, down to Florida, down to Atlanta. You know, it's it's a it's a great location, and you know, with the the kinds of incentives, you know, we were able to get a, a ten year um, sales and use tax exemption on equipment, and so that's a significant savings for anybody that wants to try to implement IT. You know, uh, you know, ship it here, and you'll save seven and a half percent in sales tax, and the sales tax is also removed off of electricity usage, and with the rider that we have. You know, we've got, uh, you know, we're we're sub five cents, you know, close to like 4.1 cents is what we've got. And um, that is a low cost that uh, should be, a, you know, and, it, and certainly in talking with customers, it, it's something that's, 
you know, certainly uh, um, something that resonates with them. Uh, and I, I, I have struggled a little bit to try to understand what is happening. Why can't they, you know, why can't there be more, um, you know, awareness of, of the location being such a, a good one, especially from a, a mid-Atlantic standpoint, um, you know, kind of a halfway point, uh, so to speak, but also one where uh, there's uh, a, such a great uh, growing um, technology community as well. I mean, Microsoft just moved another uh, thousand people, you know, into the into the space, uh, into the um, into the market here, and uh, and it's just growing. And they made this their second smart city that they're doing after Houston. So there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of things. At least I can look at it in Charlotte and in Raleigh, and that and that's it. Those are the two major centers. And Winston Salem's got a little bit. But really, it's the, the greater concentration is there, you know, in, in Raleigh, driven I think off of the RTP effect, and you know, here in Charlotte, off of the, the financial centers uh, approach. And so isn't it Kings Mountain? Kings. And Kings Mountain is, yeah, just it's just due west of, um, you know, just outside the perimeter, um, in Charlotte. And um, that's a location. AT and T's got a location there with uh, Ypro T5 built the campus. Um, uh, Disney's got a data center facility there. Um, so there's a you know there's a, a cluster of of uh, larger facilities that are um, uh, sprinkled really around. They've got uh, uh, the Kings Mountain area um, uh, in the center of downtown. Um, Couple of places north. Uh, we're just uh, north outside the the perimeter. Um, you know, part of the attraction for us was again for that. You know, not only for the the, the fiber conduits, but also the power availability. I mean, we're able to get um, green sustainable power from the McGuire Nuclear Power Plant and the Cowan's Ford Hydro Plant, uh, which are on Lake Norman. So that's providing you know a, a, a great opportunity as well for uh, customers that are looking for how can I get sustainable power because I'd like that. Well, not only can you get it, but you can get it for a low cost here in Charlotte. Um, and I think that that's, uh, that's, that's something that um, we're certain that we're banging the drum uh, for the, you know, for why the market is, 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 uh, is one to be considering. Um, when you look at Raleigh, um, is it really still being driven mostly from research triangle? Uh, you know, um, you know, organizations there, or um, what other kind of, of growth? Because I know so much pharmaceutical development is also taking place in Raleigh, isn't it? Dude, there's everything. I mean, we have the three major universities: Duke, NC State, mm-hmm. UNC. Got the state capital here, and then you have all the infrastructure that supports the state capital. Um, this whole region was, in fact, the original Silicon Valley. Uh, NASA and the DoD pumped a ton of money out here, which is why IBM has such a massive campus. Uh, right. Red Hat headquartered out here. Um, so all the major tech, I mean, that's a big reason why I moved out here is because everyone spoke our language. You know, when I started talking data centers, people nodding their heads. Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. Um, right. And yet what I don't see are the the players out here, you know, who are established like Cyrus One and Fluxential and Tierpoint, who have a lot of infrastructure and capital and money invested in this marketplace and are working together to promote bringing more business to North Carolina. Um, they're focused on all the other major, the tier one markets get all the attention. Um, 
And it's just, I don't know. It, it, if anyone's listening and they want to know more, <laughs> please reach out and give either myself or take a call. We can tell you and sing the praises of all the reasons why North Carolina makes so much sense. Um, it, it really is. It really is. And I'll, and I'll tell you that, you know, um, uh, they, we're able to do uh, free cooling 87% of the year. So think about that. Not having to actually do anything more than spin a fan to blow the air and be within ASHRAE guidelines. You know, that that's you know, that's what I think is is just amazing. That's why you can also guarantee getting, you know, such a great PUE. Um, because you're literally getting, you know, an opportunity at being able to provide cooling at the lowest possible cost. And um so I I I can't, you know, speak, you know, more highly about, you know, what you know, this has been and then the community has been great as well. Um up here Mooresville, this is gasoline alley. This is where um so much of NASCAR um has been headquartered for years. And uh as far as the, the garages and the places. And um so uh you know for somebody, you know, as a motorhead <laughs> myself, uh got turned on by car manufacturing on a Cub Scout trip one time going to an assembly plant just sitting in awe as cars are being manufactured on assembly lines. And uh being able to see that you know automated when I later when I got out of college and was working for um for EDS at that Dorville assembly plant. I mean, you know, to me, you know, it that's been, you know, fascinating to, you know, to to see the heritage around here. Um the um the the thing I think though is that there is this the cost effect of electricity is the thing that's going to start driving and pulling people to because the cost of that is really what's what's driving the need for demand um, to be fulfilled in, in areas. So if there's a way to take advantage of lower cost power in certain markets, I think that's going to start to be the drive. Um, I don't know, but when I start seeing or hearing about Dominion Power, you know, driving their prices above seven cents a kilowatt hour, um, then that's it's that it, it becomes you know, and it's over two million an acre, two and a half million an acre. Um, for land up around in that area, around Loudoun County, um, I, I just I, I go, wow, that's that's just so expensive at some point. So unless your 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 strategy is focused on building out at scale and going after those large users, um, you know, it's going to be a, a a situation where you know uh, you're you're going to have a hard time working the you know, because it's the underlying costs are going to start you know taking it in. But think of you know, like out in San Jose, it's like what four million an acre. Um, and yet here, um, around in, in North Carolina, you can get something for, you know, for under a hundred thousand an acre. <laughs> it's a game changer. I think, you know, I'm hoping, uh, and I'm doing my job <laughs> to, to try yeah. to create, uh, awareness around this, but, uh, yeah, I'm sure Jake, we're going to be working together in a variety of capacities here over the coming months and years to come. And it's definitely a top topic among many uh, that we can play on, but um, I appreciate you taking the time here. I have two last questions for you and then I will let sure. you go to enjoy the rest of your day and the weekend. Um, one has to do with what is something that you've come across in the last couple of days or weeks or even months that has truly made you stop and um, 
have your mind blown in some capacity as to, I can't believe this is, this is happening or this is a reality from maybe a technology standpoint or shifts going on in the, in the world or the marketplace. You know, is there something that's really stood out for you that has made you stop and, and comment or think twice? Hmm. So for example, I was at CES a couple of weeks back in, in Vegas, the consumer electronics show. Sure. And what blew my mind was just how advanced uh, the robotics have become. And it's, it's not that robots are here because I've been following, uh, you know, Boston Scientific for a long time or Boston Dynamics for a long time and seeing the robots that they've got coming out. But the commercial viability of them now is, is unreal. And I, th I think that we are going to see in the next few months and even years uh, massive rollout of robots in a lot of jobs uh, that are currently held by you know, minimum wage workers at, at fast food restaurants and, and related establishments. Um, that's what really, among many things, kind of really took me aback. Um, I, I, would, I would say the thing that, that was most surprising for me is I had the experience of being uh, able to uh, I didn't have to show my boarding pass. My face was recognized before I went on to a Delta flight. Seriously? Yeah. It was, uh, as I was walking up, the, the panel was right there and, and it said, welcome Jake ring, uh, welcome Jake ring. And, 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 and I, I just held up my, my phone and boom, you know, I was able to walk into the plane. I was like, I was blown away by that. Wow. Um, and I think um, the facial recognition um, is is fascinating I, to me. I mean, just you know, from a you know from a security standpoint, there's that, but it's also it, it, you know the the use of I guess it, it, the points of technology that are getting to be greater. I mean, you, being able to use um, you know gate arrays that are doing more compute work. On things so that the camera is smart and it's able to do, you know to discern the difference between you know somebody that's pushing a baby carriage and somebody that's carrying a bazooka. You know you might say, well, of course, you know that should be easy. But I mean, being able to pick that up out of a sea of people um, is fascinating, and and that blew me away when I I saw that you know being done and kept you know uh, having the Recollection of what's taking place in in China, where you know facial recognition and, and monitoring is being done to such a great extent. Um, some might say to the detriment of, of civil liberties. And um, I, I I just wonder about the application there, where it becomes easy to do, but um, and becomes easier to employ. But how do you do that with the levels of protections that would also need to to go? Uh, in you know in tandem, this has got to be real tight application, and uh, and how can that be done? Um, uh, I agree with you also on the level of robotics. I mean, you know, uh, I was in the Austin airport and was going through back in October, and uh, went through, and there was a, a, a automated barista, and you just you know. Put your swiped your you know select made your selection swiped your card and boom there was the you know uh, frappe whatever that you might want you know you know, you know served up now you don't get to interact with the you know with the barista 
uh, and flirt with them as you might at you know the local Starbucks. But if you're trying to drive you know uh, a cost effectiveness, I think that the level of automation that's coming on is going to be you know surprising at how, how how much it'll be deployed. Um, I think it's going to take you know a lot of people by surprise to suddenly see it. And um, was at a McDonald's not very long ago, uh, just last week, um, going through and you know walking up to the kiosk and selecting and putting my order in the bag and you know swiping my card and there it was and all I had to do was just pick up pick it up and walk away. It's hardly any interaction at all. I was I was you know that was my first experience. I know that's been out for a little while, but you know I, I hope that the technology that we're deploying is something that's going to help us more than it's going to hurt us. And that is a big question that we won't know. And I think it's <laughs> going to do both, right? And uh, right, yeah. It, it, I mean, I could I could talk with you for probably another couple hours on that topic, but um, oh yeah, uh, and and so uh, you know I, I I get it. Um, you know, just you know the utilization of social media, um, and you know how that's had such a a, a big play, um, where people are now realizing it. it's supposed to be something that was great, but then it's anything that's you know available you know sometimes can also be used to something that could be detrimental or divisive and i think so long as they were if we're looking at things from the supportive way of how it can help i think that's going to be you know kind of a, a critical thing i mean you know giga kind of based the company on you know uh, just a, a small plug if i may it's like the acronym of the company's uh, name Giga was you know, the pull for technology. Gigawatt, gigabyte. But it, it's actually an acronym that stands for God is great. Amen. We did the, we did this on purpose so as to make the company, um, the culture, was something that we were building upon the values that we were holding dear, and we wanted that to be the case that you know so that we don't do something that we would be embarrassed to tell our moms, you know, and. Or our wives, you know, or, or something where we, you know, what we're doing, um, we want people to know and to trust us. So we're going to tell people this is what you can expect from us. And I think that having those kind of cultures and being more strong and saying these cultures, it's not enough to say just don't do evil. I think it's more important to say do good. <laughs> right. Well, the the definition of what is evil and what is good, right? Can there's there's a lot of gray area that, that companies play in around that space, but the the focus on culture and values, right, it mm-hmm. is something near and dear to my heart, which I don't think we've even touched on. Uh, but I I tend to, if I think you may appreciate listening to some of my prior podcasts because we speak in, intensely about that that topic and that issue, especially as it relates to our industry and our space, um, where so few companies are really focused on values and they're focused on values only insofar as it can pump up uh, the revenues of their business short term until they have a liquidity event. Um, it's, it's anyway, it's, it's a topic that is also near and dear to my heart, but I appreciate that. If people want to get a hold of you uh, or Giga, what is the best way for them to reach you? Um, well, the uh, website uh, to learn more about us is gigadatacenters.com. And, um, you know, in order to reach me, um, I'm jake.ring at gigadatacenters.com. And I'd welcome anybody that wanted to know, um, want to have a conversation about anything. Because <laughs> uh, I tend to learn a lot more um, when engaging with folks. And, and I've got a passion for 
understanding people's needs and how those can be supported. Um, and we'd certainly love to have a conversation if anybody's in, inclined. And awesome. uh, I look forward to it. And um, uh, cell phone number is 678-995-4346. L, give me a call. Text me. <laughs> there, there you go. You, uh, I hope, hopefully you will be surprised at the, uh, the number of people that come at you, but hopefully you're not inundated with spam calls either. Um, <laughs> that is a risk, I guess, but yeah. I, I welcome it. Well, Jake, I want to thank you for taking the time. And I also want to thank you because of all the tours that I've done in data centers, it's very rare for me to truly stop and say someone is doing something unique and different. And I can say, having toured through your facility, you definitely are. And so if anyone is in the area and they want to tour through a facility that is truly doing something different and unique, I highly recommend they do reach out to Jake uh, to to take a tour of that facility. Um, and the last question I have for you, which is a question I ask all of my uh, my uh, interview uh, ease is do you love data centers? <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> and Sean, you thank have. you very much. I appreciate your time. You're very welcome. Um, well, thank you again and have a beautiful evening and weekend. And thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in. Thanks. And hope you have a great weekend too. God bless. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you. Peace be with you. Peace. So there you have it, folks. I hope you enjoyed the interview. And before I sign off, I really need you to know that we really do love data centers over here at Open Spectrum. It's not just a, a catchy tagline for a podcast. They are our passion and our livelihood. And I encourage you to learn more about how we serve buyers, service providers, agents, master agents, and investors in the data center hosting network and cloud services space. Uh, you can check out our website at www.openspectruminc.com where you can download a mountain of free content that we produce, such as the numerous regional market reports and excerpts from our book, The Data Center Collocation Industry Playbook, that is now on its fourth edition. You can also read the show notes and links from this podcast at www.openspectruminc.com forward slash I love data centers. Have a great week and I will see you and hopefully hear from you soon.